you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, you heard it right. If you're interested in work that's meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable... You've come to the right place. This is the podcast where we address those issues, where we figure out ways you can, in fact, move from work that is distasteful, frustrating, and all of those things that I keep hearing about out there. You know, I I, I know that I have a very, very short fuse for spending time in things that I don't enjoy. I don't think it's just a matter of uh, me having been around a good long while. I've always been like that. When people ask me about my own work history and have me describe all the things I did that I really didn't enjoy doing and how long I stayed there, it's like, I never did that. I never did anything that I didn't enjoy. I mean, I did a lot of different things. When I first graduated from the Ohio State University, I had a degree in psychology. I went to work at Harding Hospital. It was a private psychiatric hospital. Worked there for four years. Absolutely loved what I was doing. While I was there, it was a, it was a real primo position for some young punk just out of school with just a bachelor's degree. I was an adjunctive therapist, got to work directly with the psychiatrist and dream therapist and all the other people where we created a 24 hour treatment program for people that came through there. It was a wonderful, wonderful facility and a wonderful training ground for me. And I went back to graduate school. Spent a couple of years getting my master's degree. While I was doing that, I had a teaching assistantship, which is a new experience. So I got to teach while I was getting another degree. Then we went from there to Southern California, just because we didn't want to grow old, wishing we'd lived in Southern California. And we went out there, and I took a position with an established therapist in the Center for Human Understanding. How's that for a grandiose title? Now, maybe there's an example, because... Three months into that, I realized I don't enjoy this. Now, again, this was a pretty fancy schmancy position that I had in a established counseling practice. I had my fresh master's degree, but I didn't like it. Well, guess how long I stuck around? Eh, about another two weeks. I mean, I just decided I don't want to do this. And I was so new, it wasn't that big a deal to untangle what I had obligated myself to and uh, joined a friend in the car business and uh, much to the chagrin of my wife at that point who thought she had worked, helped me work my way through school to be a professional psychologist or psychotherapist. And instead she, now she was married to a used car dealer. How's that for a move up? Well, I loved it. Loved it. And i First year out, I made probably three times the money that I ever dreamed of making as a therapist or in the things I had done previous to that. We had a blast. We'd pick out a car on, off the lot on Thursday afternoons and head for Vegas for the weekend or go to Lake Arrowhead or Lake Powell or Palm Springs. I mean, we had a blast. Four years into that, I decided, you know what? And as much as I love to work and having a blast, I really don't enjoy living where we are dealing with smog and congestion. Joanne joined me on that feeling. My partner 
Join me as well. We all left Southern California at the same time. We moved back to, well, we moved back to Bowling Green, Kentucky. My partner moved up to Northern California where they continue to live. We continue to interact with them, you know, on a weekly basis, if not more frequently, and go out there and spend time together. But we came back here and I, st- I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't really worry about it. I knew I'd figure something out. And that's when I started a little auto accessories business where we provided aftermarket accessories to the new car dealers that flourished was successful way beyond my timeline expectations and had a blast doing that so i was installing you know sunroofs and cruise controls and running boards and pinstripes and wheel up molding door edge guard all those things helping new car dealers create more margin on their cars being a car guy anyway i loved what i was doing there loved that period of time and uh, then I sold it to a couple employees because eh, I got itchy feet. You know, I, I tend to not stick around too long if things get to be predictable, even if they're pretty successful. Anyway, then went on to had a health and fitness center. It was something new for me. It was something energizing. Cash flow was pretty phenomenal. We had about 4,000 members in that. And then that was a period of time where you've heard me talk about it wasn't that I disliked it, but all of a sudden some things changed. I made some management decisions too quickly, put me in a real untenable position. I ended up crashing and burning, so to speak, but I didn't lose any sleep over that. I mean, I really didn't. I mean, I owed a lot of people a lot of money, including the IRS, but I just said, okay, what am I going to do next that I enjoy doing? So I found or kind of semi-created a little position doing commission selling work where I just hit the streets, didn't have any base any guarantee. I had hundreds of thousands of dollars that I owed, but I knew that selling was going to be my best opportunity to have a big shovel to get out of the hole. So I went to work selling. And in four or five months, I was up to a position, you know, where I was again making six figures. I was making ten, twelve thousand dollars a month doing that. Well, I did that for about two years. And then I created another little selling opportunity where I was direct selling with an advertising concept, I created it, pulled it out of thin air, and did that. Now, ultimately, we decided to move to Nashville because we thought it was a cool place to be. Major airport, lots of cultural things going on. We love the seasonal changes, not too harsh, either winter or summer. And so, in the process of, again, selling, Joanna and I were teaching a Sunday school class. Out of that, developed the materials that are now 48 Days to the Work You Love. So that evolved out of that. And, of course, I've really leveraged that with you know, seminars and workshops and live events and other electronic products, audios, and all the things that, that we do and all the way up to today where you now I have a brand-new book that just came out, Wisdom Meets Passion, just came out last Tuesday. And we're rocking and rolling with that. I'm doing interviews left and right. did four interviews yesterday, radio interviews, and have a whole lot of things lined up. But I, I've always done things that I've enjoyed. Now, that is a pretty scattered past that I just went through there very quickly. So it's not like, wow, you know, I got one job and really loved it and just, nah, I've done a lot of things. But a couple of things are important here. For one, one is I enjoy doing a lot of different things. There's not just one thing that I enjoy. Sometimes I am concerned in working with people, coaching with people, and we're looking for that one thing that they're going to do. I know we, what was it, City Slickers, where they talked about the one thing. Well, I, th- I think we ought to focus on one thing at a time, essentially, so we can really do that with excellence. But I think that one thing can change over time. I don't think that's the same thing when you're 20 as when you're 40 or when you're 55 or whenever. I think it can change. So 
I've chased a lot of things that seem to be really unconnected in terms of how they're how they line up in terms of a career path. I haven't had a real uh, straight line career path at all. I mean, even at this point, there's a whole lot of things that get my attention every day. There are new things that get my attention. But so the point is, I don't think that work is the only thing that defines our level of happiness or level of success or our identity. If it does, you're really vulnerable because then if something happens to the work, you know, you're dead in the water, don't know who you are and feel like you're starting over. I never did that. Work is just one tool for a successful life. So I just picked up with where I was and went on from there. So I've always enjoyed the things that I've done. And uh, I just uh, can't imagine not enjoying. I can't imagine getting up in the morning and not looking forward to the things that I'm going to do. Now, there's a lot of variety in what I do today. And I've created that purposely because I, I do get bored pretty quickly if things are the same or if they're repetitive. So yesterday I did a lot of radio interviews. Uh, I also did a lot of writing yesterday. Today I had lunch meetings, several other meetings. Actually, I'm out uh, hustling up a couple new cars today. That's another story. Um, I'll, I'll address that. I got a question that deals with that. But um, so I don't put all my eggs in one basket, so to speak, in terms of this has to work or I'm going to be a shell of a man. Nah, not a chance. I mean, there's a lot of things that I could do work-wise. I, I think part of it has to do with my mindset that I expect to enjoy what I'm doing. But also, I really do line things up with what it is I do well, what puts in alignment my skills and abilities, my personality tendencies, my values, dreams, and passions. I want to line those things up. When those are in alignment, there's a whole, still, even with those in alignment, there's a whole lot of career and work opportunities that would be possibilities. So, hey, stay tuned. Who knows what I'll be doing next year? Well, at this stage in my life, I, I know my writing will continue to be at the forefront it's so fulfilling and so purposeful and frankly so profitable as well that I uh, don't know of anything else that will replace that. But there's a lot of components in the, the business that I have today that probably will change. We're always evaluating new things that we could do. Well, hey, I didn't mean to go off on just that long tangent about myself, but I wanted to give it as, as an example because I continue to hear from so many people who are frustrated and feel trapped. And I'm like, look, you're not trapped. You can make a choice tomorrow morning not to go there. Now, you may not like the consequences of that, but you really are not trapped. You can make a new decision if you want to. Well, here's where we look at those kind of questions and more. What are you doing to make sure that your work lines up with the kind of life that you want to live? So that's a reflection of the life that you want, and you don't plan your life around your work. You should do it the other way around. Here's some of the things we're going to be looking at. Dan, I'm an artist. I create works of art. How can I use this to serve others? Got some interesting input. I'll have you hear from some other people. Provide input on that one in just a minute here. Dan, I have an idea for a button similar to the easy button that Staples came out with a few years ago. Not sure where to go with that. Dan, I know you're a car guy, so what are your thoughts on providing a car buying service? Hey, I can't wait to get to that one. Because I like the question. I like the ideas around that. Dan, from your standpoint as a consultant and a business person, what are Amish businesses doing well? Well, people know I came from that background. I admire a lot of what I see in the Amish businesses. And yeah, there's some real reasons why they do well. We'll share that. And another question, Dan, in your new book, Wisdom Meets Passion, does Jared represent passion in you wisdom? Oh my gosh, 
I get asked that almost on every interview because we talk about the different generations. It's easy to assume that, well, the younger generation has passion, the older generation has wisdom. Oh my gosh, I hope it's not like that. I hope it's not like that in your life. This is not a linear transition from one to the other. Well, we'll talk about that. Here's our quotation for the day. It comes from Theodore Roosevelt. Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much, because they live in a gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. Well, I can't be accused of doing that. I never lived in that gray twilight. I'm always on the edges, either on the edge of disaster or on the edge of stupendous success. (laughs) Sometimes they're pretty closely connected. And I'm not sure which way it's going to be the next day, but I do love to be there. So don't live in that gray twilight. No rewards from being there. A risk defeat rather than living in mediocrity. Hey, that's what I say. Well, here's a question. This comes from Tricia, who says, Dan, I keep hearing that serving others is the key. I'm an artist. I create works of art. How can I use this to serve others? Now, this is a great question. Last week I talked about, I think I referenced my friend, Rabbi Daniel Lappin's book, Thou Shall Prosper, where he talks about if you have a dollar bill in your hand, you can look at that. It's a certificate of appreciation is what it is. It means somebody else valued what you had enough to part with that. In many ways, it's a spiritual transaction if it's done correctly. And if you have money, it means that you served somebody in some way. If you sold them a car, you mowed their yard, you washed their dishes, you fixed their crooked back, whatever, you did something. That's how we know we're serving people if we are compensated by those Benjamin Franklin's in our hand. So this lady is asking, Trisha is asking, I'm an artist. I create works of art. How can I use this to serve others? Now, what do you think? Can somebody with an artistic skill like that serve others? Or is it just a, I mean, I mean, you, I would think that we would be able to see the connection here pretty quickly because even there, people aren't going to pay you for your art unless They value it, you know, more than you do to keep it. I mean, they pay you for it. I mean, certainly we know artists that make a lot of money. Yeah, we hear about starving artists. What does that mean? Does that mean that a starving artist is simply doing their art for their own personal gratification, that they never thought about what would have value to other people? Now, this doesn't have to be compromising your art. It doesn't have to mean you sit down on a blank canvas and say, geez, what can I create that old Dan Miller would be willing to part with money for? No, I think that does change. But if you're doing something that really has value, people ought to recognize, wow, when I look at this, I really get a sense of peace. Or when I look at this, I'm inspired to go do more. When I look at that butterfly that just came out of a cocoon, it reminds me of how I am more than I once was. I mean, I don't know. I could go on and on and on. But here's what I did. All right, now you've heard me talk about on Wednesdays when I'm sitting here in my office in the sanctuary doing art there's a room full of women right on the other side of my door who are in an art class. And I thought, well, what an opportune way to get input. What an opportune way to figure out what do artists do that serve others? I've got some of those ladies queued up here where I walked around a room 
with my little Edderall recorder and just got their thoughts. I want to share some of those with you. Now, the first one you're going to hear from here is Debbie Dearman. Debbie and Kirk Dearman have been involved in Christian music for years and years and years. Matter of fact, I'll give you a connection. Most of you in church have at one point or another sung the worship song, We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. And and you on from there. Kirk and Debbie Dearman wrote that song. They wrote that. Now that's a form of art, obviously, is writing music like that. They got royalties on that song for years, along with lots of other things. You know, they lead worship conferences all over the country, all around the world. A few years ago, here, here's a couple of things that happened. Now, this is, these are ways to turn art into things that serve other people. I mean, that in itself is an example. Writing a song that other people enjoy, that they want, that they value, they buy it, they buy the sheet music, they buy the CDs, and it creates income for the artist. One of the things that I encouraged Kirk and Debbie to do a few years ago when they were looking at ways to expand what they were doing, because church worship music has changed. There's no secret about that. We don't have the big come by our conferences like we used to. It may be a little harder to do that particular thing in the same way as it is most things in life. They went to a funeral, heard a poem read that was titled The Dash. It deals with what do you do with that little check mark in between your birth date and your death? They heard that read as a poem and said, oh my gosh, that ought to be set to music. They came home, put it to music, checked around, and sure enough, the person, Linda Ellerby, who wrote the poem, is still very much alive, connected with her. They together proposed it to Mac Anderson, who has a business called Simple Truths out of Chicago. They do these beautiful little gift books where things like The Strangest Secret, Eat the Frog First, and those kind of things are done. And that now is a little book called The Dash where it has the poem in there, beautiful four-color artwork all the way through it in the back inside cover. There's an audio CD, and it has a musical version of The Dash done by Kirk and Debbie Dearman. Now, as you'll hear in this little piece, when I talk about Debbie being a musical performer, you're going to hear that her voice struggles at this season in her life. She's had some real challenges with her voice. So all of a sudden, she's looking for other ways to have an artistic outlet that'll continue not only her personal expression, sense of fulfillment, but also income. She's in this art class that's here every Wednesday. She enjoys the camaraderie with the other girls. I mean, it's an amazing group of gals who are together. I'll introduce you to a couple others here as well. Amazing group of gals who get together. And Debbie now is doing art, and her art is amazing. I mean, these are the first art classes she ever took, and people were already standing in line to buy her art. The first pieces she put up, and she sold like three the very first day because it's that stunning, the art that she does. I ought to have the website, and I don't. Well, you know, it's, I think her, I think her um, website, now that I think about it, is Come to the Quiet, which is another project. She and Kirk do instrumental CDs that are beautiful, that are then played in dental offices and massage when people are getting massages and all those kind of places because the music is so conducive to a peaceful, calm spirit. Come come to the quiet, I think, is her website. 
Let me have you hear Debbie talk about how do you use art in a way that serves others? Yeah, I think there's nothing more offensive than an artist that is consumed with their career, their art, their um, well-being. But um, artists who are willing to look beyond themselves and give to others, help others, uh, I, I just think it's contagious. And people who see artists who are willing to give, they're attracted to that. So I think every artist needs a purpose beyond their art. They need a vision. And they need to think of themselves as world changers. How can I change the world with my art? That's a pretty powerful statement coming from an artist. Do you think artists need to stand in the background and believe that they don't have anything to contribute? No. I mean, Debbie, speaking from her art, telling you, you can be a world changer. And I certainly agree with that. You can change the world with your art. Next one you're going to hear from is my wife, Joanne. Now, Joanne has been taking art lessons for about 12 years, I guess. It's been an amazing new season of her life to release a part of herself that she didn't know was there, unlock the right side of her brain, a whole bunch of other really fun things. I love what it's done for her being involved in art. But you'll hear her talk a little bit here about how art's how artists can serve. Each week in, in the art class, we try to have a question, and we're, we're challenging each other on, on, on really better understanding how our art uh, works into our life in, in all different areas. And, one of the, and the question today was, what defines you? How does that show in your art? Um, I'm reminded in your asking this question that um, you had a client at one time who was a pastor and was very frustrated in what he did. And how, and he was a brilliant artist who now has come uh, uh, through a very circuitous route, getting to where his his paintings are are selling in nice galleries for lots of money. But in that process, he started out by serving others by doing murals in their homes, faux finishes on their walls, all of these things that allowed him, he said, to minister in ways that he never could from a pulpit. And so he used his art in order to, again, as Debbie says, look outside himself, helping others, being in their homes, painting beautiful things on their walls that told a story in their eyes, but yet helped him to minister in ways that he could not do just in a pulpit. Another powerful example of how an artist can use his or her art to serve. Joanne's referencing Ron Baldwin, who is a well-known artist in the Nashville area, his art is in the finest galleries, in the fanciest restaurants in this part of the country. He's done amazing things since he transitioned into that and sees that as an increased method of serving compared to having been a pastor prior to that. It's just, it, there's, it's not that one's right and one's wrong at all. It's just that what is the right fit for him? And for him, trying to do well as a pastor was an unauthentic fit, whereas being an artist there's that natural release of how God has gifted him and increased his opportunities to serve. Now, this next lady from the art class, from Joanne's art class here, her name is Paula Foster. Some of you may recognize that name from uh, Paula and David Foster. David Foster was pastor of one of the largest churches here in the Nashville area. Uh, David was a member of my Wednesday morning Eagles group a dear, dear personal friend. And about six months ago, 
David went to sleep on a Sunday night and didn't wake up. I mean, just a tragedy that we still don't understand. Paula is coming to these art classes. It's a way for her to work through her grief, but continue to express herself. She's a very vibrant, alive lady and doing things to continue a life of meaning, even though having been confronted with that unexpected tragedy in her own life. So here's Paula. Uh, Initially, it can be helping like serve, serving by meeting a need that might be out there, even if it's painting a mural or, uh, you know, a a small painting that goes toward an auction that goes toward something that's a bigger picture than you are. But, you know, like Debbie said, I think it's, it's finding what challenges you and what your passion is and starting serving in that area with your art to that organization or that family or that group of people, whatever it is. And then, like she said, it's all—it's like a door opens up from there. It's, you know, one door opens another door, and mm-hmm. it can be bigger than you've ever imagined. Uh, but, you know, I think it's seeking that opportunity to say, where, what people can I help? You know, again, it's the same thing as Jared, you know. He was looking for a, a place to serve what his passion was. He knew it. And, what, and with whatever our art is, we may not know what it defines, but we know we love the art. So who can we serve, and what brings you the most joy in that type of art that you're, you might contribute? Now we're talking from listening to artists who are describing how they can use their art to serve. It was the initial question in the podcast today, and uh, we have a lot of input on that from ladies who are heavily involved in their own art. Now, the way that these ladies make money from this varies, and I know that was part of the Trisha's question, uh, but uh, everybody in here has opportunities to make money from the art that they're doing as well. Now, next you're going to hear from Dorsey McHugh. Dorsey is the instructor for this art class. Dorsey is a very widely recognized artist, has art all over the world, literally, and in some of the finest galleries in the world. She did a major project for the, uh, for the Olympics that were just held in London, but she gets commissioned work from high-profile people and is very well established in her work. She does beautiful work, but you're going to hear from Dorsey. And then Joanne chimes in a little bit. My wife Joanne chimes in a little bit as well with Dorsey. I was thinking that an artist is no different than anyone else. We, we just have a different set of skills. And so we give what we have to give. And for my own personal self as an artist... The balance, it's always this juggling act between giving unselfconsciously, because if you give self-consciously, you start getting proud about what you're giving. So you have to give almost without, without thinking very much that you're giving. In my, just for me, that's how I feel about it. I feel like I want to live a life of giving rather than giving self-consciously. And I think that begins in your own setting your purpose. And one of the ways that you do give is by teaching others to bring out something in their lives that adds beauty to their lives. So you're teaching classes now and making a living doing it. And you are opening up to, uh, for all of us who are taking art from you, uh, a life that is more beautiful, more meaningful, more exciting. 
And so, again, you're outside yourself and your own art, but you are giving that gift to everybody else that you come in contact with. Well, yeah, that's, that is what I'm doing. But somebody else might do something completely different with their art and still be giving. And to me, the best gift is honesty. Like if I tell the things about myself that maybe I would rather hide, like if I just want to tell a happy story, mm -hmm. then it's not going to have as much impact as if I really tell the truth about the story that I'm giving, that I'm telling. And teaching for me is, that's a really unselfconscious thing that I've happened upon because I never thought I was a teacher. I never aspired to be a teacher. I never even imagined that I could. And then someone asked me to do it and I thought, well, what the heck, I can. That's something I can do. I can tell them what I know, which isn't everything, but I can tell them what I know. And I really can't get too proud about it. <laughs> you know, I love the way Dorsey started out there because she says, you know, art is just, just happens to be what we have as a skill, but it's really no different than if you're a, a flower ranger or if you're a truck driver or a plumber or electrician. It's just the skill that you have. There should be no diminishing the opportunities to serve, and certainly you're hearing from these ladies ways that that can be done many ways. One more, and then we'll move on. This is Angela, also in this art class. Pouring into other lives, and I just, my reaction three weeks ago when I walked in here was... I mean, I just immediately got tears in my eyes because I was so provoked at what I saw going on. And so I think for the opportunity for anyone to be able, as you were saying this, I'd already been thinking about that verse about calling for it, that which is lovely from people. And I think art is certainly an expression, an opportunity to be able to express that which is lovely within someone. And I, I just think even as um, an example of my friend who, is was in Uzbekistan and what she did with these women was not art like this but she taught them how to quilt little quilting squares and it called forth this community of women who had no support or no affirmation to do something with their hands that was beautiful an expression of, of themselves and so Anyway, that was nothing profound, but just added on to. <laughs> well, there you hear it. From artists themselves, in multiple ways, they certainly all believe that they're serving. Trisha, I hope that helps you as well. There's certainly many opportunities to serve. And again, don't hold your head down. Don't be ashamed of the idea of using your art so you create things that people pay for. And that's a legitimate exchange where you're serving by providing something that they want. That's not just some kind of cold, callous commerce. That's still a method of serving. People give you money because they feel enriched in some way by having what you've created. So be proud of doing that. Well, let's move on. Again, you're listening to Dan Meller on the 48 Days Online radio show, where each week we take your questions, probing, introspective, interesting questions just like that and unpack them in ways that hopefully move us all to higher levels of success. If you've got a question, you can go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link, and you'll see a little box there where you can submit your question. I'd be happy to entertain that for an upcoming show. Had a lot of you comment back in ways that you're listening to the podcast. I asked that last week. I said it's uh, challenging for our web team to figure out how many people are actually listening to the podcast because people access it in so many different ways. 
and indeed they do. Um, the the different ways that people I didn't even understand some of the language that people were talking about. But thanks for your comments, ways that you are listening to the podcast. Keep doing that if you're coming to our podcast site on 48days.com. We appreciate your comments there. If you're accessing through iTunes, please comment there, rank it, so we continue to get the high ratings that we're getting there. We appreciate each of you as listeners, no matter how you are accessing the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Let me go to this question. This one comes from Grant in New Zealand who says, I have an idea for a button similar to the easy button that Staples came out with a few years ago. It would say a catchy phrase. It would make businesses more kid-friendly. Different markets are possible. How do I get someone to make this? Internet searches are coming up dry. Thanks. Well, Grant, I, I want to encourage you on this. I mean, I love these kind of things. Things can be gimmicky and still have extraordinary success. A few years ago, a friend of mine, her name is Sylvana Clark, put together an idea. Her husband came home, as I recall, from work, just you know, frustrated about things at work and said he wished he just had a panic key on his keyboard. Well, they put together exactly that, a panic key, which goes over any key on the keyboard, and it is just a red panic button. Now, there are certainly some buttons on anybody's keyboard that aren't used commonly, so it's a, a just a, a humorous little thing, and that it is. But with that little plastic panic key, it says, I went to the site a minute ago, and you can find it at panicbuttons.com. I mean, what a great domain that she actually got that panicbuttons.com and you'll see the keys that she has one is a panic key one is any key remember how the old trainers at the other end used to say well just push any key and people would look around for where's the any key well you know better than that now but there she's got an any key and then she's got one that says whatever whatever a green key but she sold over 200,000 of those now I get a sense of what that means. Over 200,000 of those, primarily just through the website. There really isn't much else that she's done for that. It's a small dollar item. But small dollar item, maybe one to three sell for $3 a piece. $3 a piece. Now, you can get it down to a dollar if you go up to 26 or more. But let's just say that we got an average in there somewhere I mean, we're talking essentially half a million dollars that has been created and if those things are selling for three dollars a piece i mean i'm looking at the button i mean we get a lot of things manufactured here i mean i'm confident you can have that manufactured for maybe 10 or 12 cents so there's big profit margin there but yeah check that out check out panic buttons if you want to get something a prototype done like you're talking about my encouragement would be to go first to inventorsdigest.com Inventors Digest is the respected standard magazine in that industry, and you can link there to manufacturing companies that will do a prototype. It's not that complicated. There's lots of them around. You don't need to be worried about, somebody's going to steal my idea because it's a, nah, people are too interested, too busy doing what they're doing. You can work with any one of a thousand different manufacturing companies to have them manufacture it, give you a prototype, make sure you get one that you really want, and that's just the way that's done talked recently i was at a conference in atlanta and there were two young guys got up on stage and told a story about they had done a kickstarter project you know where you put an idea up on kickstarter and people fund it now what they fund though it's not just a contribution it was funny we did one recently indiegogo with the launch of wisdom meets passion and there were some people i ran into who thought they were just making a contribution Thought, oh my gosh no 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 we don't need your money to just 
be donated. The contribution is what it's called just because of the way it's structured, but you're choosing packages that you want then to be sent to you. And we had Ubuntu medallions and candies and visits at the sanctuary and all kinds of fun things in there. Now it's over. But anyway, these two kids had done a project where they were introduced in a very inexpensive espresso machine. Well, they wanted to raise $40,000. And they were going to hand make the espresso machines. Just make them one at a time because it was just kind of cut out parts they were putting together. Well, they got not only the 40000 they got over $400,000 brought in and ordered, as I recall, for like 1500 of these espresso machines. Well, there was no way in the world they could fulfill all those orders. So they were scrambling trying to find a manufacturing company to work with to create those. And they'd gone through a couple bad experiences, but they were going to now work with a company they had found that was going to, in fact, manufacture those and essentially put them in business. I mean, a great idea. You could do something similar to that. I mean, my son-in-law, Nathan, just ordered, it's like a buzz salt. It's, it's a gun that shoots salt. It's like a no toxic, no pesticide fly swatter. It shoots salt. Uh, you can look it up. It's like buzz salt or something. Well, they've done like over $500,000 in request for those guns now. This goofy little gun, you're going to shoot flies with it and it shoots salt. I don't know exactly how it works, but with what you're describing, a button that's kind of like the easy button, you may do like an Indiegogo or a Kickstarter project to launch that thing where you raise the money to then fund manufacturing of that. Now, make sure you've got a good prototype and good photos. You can go to Indiegogo or Kickstarter to look at some of the projects that are done there, get some guidelines about how to do that well. Uh, There's actually a company out of Colorado Springs or out of Woodland Park called Catalytics. It's three guys who are working together. They helped us with our project, and they're available as consultants to help you know how to do that well. So you really do raise the money that you want. Again, the company is Catalytics. And I can give you personal contact information for them if you can't find it through there. But it's John, Sean, and Justin are the guys. But work with them. Have them help you with that. Cool thing. Sounds great. Do it. Emily from Capistrano Beach, California says, Dan, I want to thank you for your book, 48 Days, The Work You Love. You know, this is just a, a thank you. Thanks for your note, Emily. She says they work with people who are in financial crisis and often then they give them the 48 days to the work you love book as well. They go hand in hand. Obviously when um, somebody's in financial trouble, a lot of times what they really need is a boost to their income. That's been why I've had the relationship that I've had for 20 years now with Dave Ramsey, because they know that a lot of times when people are struggling financially, the real key is not just managing well, but it's increasing the income and we want to help them get the income up. Very legitimate desire. And uh, thanks for using those materials together like that. This question comes from somebody in Cameroon. This is Anike. Anike, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Dan, I think I'm finally ready to do the work I love. I would be leaving an executive position to start a social enterprise. Most people think I'm nuts. I've listened to your podcast. Know that I can do well while doing good. Our first operation will be in my native Cameroon. My plan is to help underemployed youth gain job and entrepreneurial skills through a center for social entrepreneurship and innovation. We will offer workshops and hands-on learning through two micro enterprises that are already in place. They are number one, a retail store for the last year. I've sold, I resold high quality clothing, shoes, health and beauty products, bought at discount in target Marshall's and Burlington coat factory. 
High-quality products are in great demand by the growing middle class in Cameroon. Number two is a guest house. We'll run out of a home I inherited from my grandpa. Having worked in the United States for 20-some years, we plan to contract with universities and organizations worldwide to provide learning and service opportunities for new constituents. Uh, we expect most of our revenue to come from fees to place interns, volunteers, program participants from the microenterprises. A rough crunch of the numbers indicates that similar to many social enterprises, we will either just break even or have low profit margins. Our gross would be around $100,000. Are there other ways in which we can generate additional income? Before I pack my bags, I need help with a solid plan. Thanks for the wonderful work you do. Well, thank you, and thank you for your question. Yeah, make sure the income generating side of what you are laying out here covers the cost of the training program. Now, by that, I would suggest then that you integrate as much of the training into the real business side as possible. So when you're teaching business skills, instead of having a lot of classroom lecture for that, get them into the retail store where you can assign them tasks, where they can help track inventory, look at margins, relate to the customers, you know, do the financials in the back end. I mean, they can get all the experience that they need by being involved in the operation there. That's a very realistic way to do that. I have a friend here in town whose name is Dick Gigi, who started a company called Thrift Smart a few years ago. Dick retired as a, a pretty wealthy CEO of a company. So it wasn't that he needed to go out and make more money, but he decided he was going to spend the rest of his life raising funds for a couple of his favorite charities. Well, about six months into this, I mean, any of us who got a phone call from Dick Gigi to go to lunch, we knew what was going to happen. He was going to hit us up for money. Well, he wasn't real thrilled about doing it like that. And he thought, no, wait a minute, something's wrong with his pitcher. I'm a business guy. There ought to be a way that I can raise money better than just going around and asking people for handouts. So he started Thrift Smart. It's much like Salvation Army or Goodwill. He has 18 tractor trailers sitting around strategic places in the city of Nashville where churches and others you know, donate things that come through there they process everything i mean if a pair of blue jeans comes into their inventory it doesn't stay there for a year no if it's there for 30 years it's get pulled they bundle it they send it to women down in belize who then break those blue jeans down and make these really cool purses from them everything is recycled everything is tracked He's very efficient as a business manager, and in his first year of running the company, not only did he employ about 30 people who would otherwise have a tough time getting a job, and in the process gave them good job training, but he also had about $230,000 in net profit that he was then able to give to his favorite charities. I mean, it can be done, exactly what you're describing. You can do it. Just make sure you approach it as a business and not just as some kind of charity where you hope money falls out of the sky to fund it because you're doing something worthwhile. No, make it work as a business plan. There is absolutely no reason that you can't do good and do well at the same time. I like your idea. I mean, I think you can pull it off. So keep me posted on what happens with that. Eric from Crawfordville, Florida says, Dan, I know you're a car guy. So what are your thoughts on providing a car buying service? I know many people who despise the car buying process. I love it. I sold cars and liked the consumer interaction, but really didn't like the long hours and not feeling like I could take time off due to losing sales. I could do the whole process for clients or just pieces, like the price and term negotiation. I know this is available from credit unions, but I would keep it local if possible to create a win-win situation for client and local business. I've kicked this idea around for a while. would like to hear your perspective. Thanks for all you do, Eric. Thanks for your question, Eric. The question again is, can you create a business model where this will work? 
Now you're describing a service, a car buying service, that is going to be an additional component to the buying process that most people are not used to. I mean, it's like paying for financial advice. When you, most people expect to get that from their banker, their stockbroker, their insurance agent at no cost, even though everyone knows those people make money from getting commissions then on products that they sell you. But I'm wondering in this case, when you have a car buying service where somebody wants a 2008 Lincoln Aviator with 45,000 miles on it, you're going to go find that. Instead of just being paid for your services, which I think is going to be a tough business model. I mean, if you negotiate a price and then you tack on a buying fee or some kind of service, it's an artificial piece in there that people are going to resist. They're going to think, well, mine, I probably could have found that myself. I would have taken a Saturday morning, just scrounged around a little bit on eBay or Craigslist. You're going to have a hard time establishing the value of what you're doing, even though it's not difficult for me to understand it as a car guy. But I think you're going to spend most of your time educating people to the need of what you're providing rather than just doing it. Thus, my question is, why don't you just sell a few cars? Why don't you just get great deals on cars, promote those, deal directly with the customers, make the big margins that you can if you're doing that and understand what you're doing well. I would just do that. I would, instead of trying to set up some new kind of position that has not been in existence before, I would just flat buy a few cars, run them and sell them. And I used to do that a lot. I mean, I've always relied on that in transition times where I needed significant income while I was starting a new business or going to school, I've always reverted back to, hey, go to a couple of repo auctions. Man, you can, if you know what you're looking at, you can buy those things for pennies on the dollar, clean them up, make sure they're okay mechanically, put them in your front yard or whatever, have a relationship with a car dealer where you confront them on his lot. I mean, I, I would just sell them rather than trying to extract you know, $250 buying fee just buy a car and sell it or you make a thousand bucks on it. That's what my advice would be. Hey, a couple more real quick here. Maybe just one. Dan, could you share a little bit about your background, your connection to the Amish? Sure. My grandparents on both sides were horse and buggy Amish. My parents became conservative Mennonite when I was young. We slowly became more liberal. Uh, got running water in the house when I was in about the eighth grade. Uh, we had cars, but they were always totally black. We never had TV or radio in the house. Didn't have a radio in the barn, so Dad could listen to the weather as we were farmers. And, of course, he was bivocationally pastored, not paid for that, and then we farmed as a way to eke out a living. Hey, that's what we were doing. One more I want to just squeeze in real quick here. I'm getting asked a lot, and a lot of you already have Wisdom Meets Passion, the book. Thanks for participating in the Indiegogo Project. Other ways that you've gotten that in your hand. People are asking me, does Jared, my son, my 34-year-old son, does he represent passion and me being the old guy represent wisdom? Heavens no. We both represent passion and wisdom. I mean, passion without wisdom can be dangerous and very self-centered. That's not what I see in Jared. You know, his intentional and meaningful application of knowledge, which certainly we would categorize as wisdom, it would put a lot of baby boomers to shame. And I trust that I have not lost passion. If you sense that I've lost passion, let me know. I'll shut up and quit writing books and get off the the radio and everything else. But I certainly hope that I've not lost passion. I mean, few things are more pathetic than an old guy who has wisdom but no passion. And of course, the biggest tragedy of all is seeing these baby boomers entering nursing homes where they have neither wisdom nor passion. 
looking back on a life with dreams unfulfilled, and looking forward to the drab existence of meaningless days and ultimate death. Now, we want you to have wisdom and passion. It doesn't matter how old you are. I don't care if you're 18 or if you're 88. We want you to have both, not just one. That's what we're conveying in Wisdom Meets Passion. Well, there we are. Out of time. Thanks for being a listener on this 48 Days Online radio show. Each week, we take your questions, and you can submit yours. Just go to the 48days.com site. Click on Podcast. You'll be able to shoot a question in. Thanks for being part of this growing audience where you are, like many people, finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. Don't settle for less. Have a great week.